So uh, we're gonna commence the meeting. This is the 803rd regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. Uh, tonight, our guest is A. Wilson Green, who will be presenting to the roundtable on the first uh, Petersburg uh, offensive. With that, we will turn to the subject of tonight's meeting, uh, which is Will Green's talk on Petersburg. Now, we are all familiar with Will Green. He's been our tour guide. Most recently, Petersburg, uh, that was for Bob Stoller's uh, tour. I believe that was 2011, which was a tremendous tour. Uh, right. When uh, Will Green took us through Pamplin Park, those magnificent earthworks there. I have a very distinct recollection of those magnificent uh, series of works there. And maybe somebody will ask Will a question about how that land was acquired. I know the story because we talked about it yesterday when we spent some time together. But uh, you should ask Will about that. He's a tremendous fundraiser. <laughs> he, he has the golden touch. Uh, but in addition to that work in his uh, 16 or 17 uh, years with the National Park Service and many years with Pamplin Park and, uh, and being one of the founders of the, uh, what ultimately become the American Battle, uh, the Battlefield Trust, he is the author of seven books, uh, all of the titles of which I cannot rattle off, unfortunately. Uh, the three books with which I am most uh, uh, aware uh, are the uh, uh, history of the uh, city of Petersburg at war, and of course, his more recent two, the final battles of the Petersburg campaign, the, the second, at least I have the second uh, edition, a magnificent uh, book on the April 2nd uh, assaults, the final assaults, and the most recent book, volume one of the Petersburg uh, campaign, which between yesterday and today, I have to tell Will, uh, I have to revise what I said yesterday. I have opened up the book. I have read part of it uh, after hearing his talk yesterday in Milwaukee. and. Uh, I am better informed than I was uh, was yesterday. He's read, uh, written numerous articles, uh, uh, only one of which I am intimately familiar with that has to do with the third day and beyond his, uh, his article on the retreat from uh, Gettysburg, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, needless to say, he is a published author many times and more, including the, uh, 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 the there's a National Park series, a short, short series of books on, uh, on all the battles uh, in campaigns, uh, he did second Manassas. So uh, uh, Will uh, also uh, uh, was our tour guide for one of our uh, mid-Tennessee uh, tours. I forget if that was for Cindy Heckler's or one of the, our earlier tours, but uh, he has been our tour guide and he is one uh, par excellence. You perhaps should at, at the end of his talk, ask him uh, about uh, uh, some of his upcoming plans for tours, they sound very interesting. So uh, with that, uh, and without further ado, uh, A. Wilson Green on the first Petersburg offensive, we have done all that is possible and must be resigned. Well, thank you. And uh, I appreciate that, not only that introduction, but let me tell everybody who logged in what a great guy you were yesterday. Mark met me at the airport at eight in the morning and dropped me off at the hotel at about 11.30 last night. So we had a lot of time together and it was delightful. He arranged a tour of uh, the Chicago Portage area, which is someplace I'd always wanted to go, but never could find, which was really a lot of fun. And so Mark, I really appreciate everything you did for me yesterday. It made it a great day. 
And needless to say, I'm delighted to be with my friends at the Chicago Roundtable. I'm only sorry that I can't see all of you in person. I have so many friends in this group, uh, and I have to say that I miss one of them dearly. Marshall Krolik uh, is someone I, I had known you know, for 40 years. And uh, it seems strange to be at the Chicago Roundtable and not have Marshall there making faces at me and criticizing what I said. Uh, but I know he's, he's with us in spirit. Uh, as Mark said, this talk is, is about uh, the first Petersburg offensive. Uh, this gentleman, uh, a post-war photograph of Edward Porter Alexander, the famous Confederate artillerist, thought that, quote, the initial struggle for Petersburg was the most interesting point in the whole military history of the Confederacy. Now, you may not agree with that assessment by Alexander, but certainly, had events between June 15th and June 18th, 1864, gone differently, the trajectory of the Civil War would have changed dramatically. So my talk tonight is going to address the movement to and the bloody combat of those four June days and to try to analyze why, despite overwhelming numerical superiority, the Federal Army failed to drive the outnumbered Confederates from Petersburg. Now, our story logically begins with Ulysses S. Grant's elevation to Lieutenant General and General-in-Chief of all Union armies. Grant brought two strategic imperatives to his new responsibility. First, to apply simultaneous pressure across all theaters of the war. And secondly, in Virginia, where he chose, of course, to make his headquarters with George D. Meade's Army of the Potomac, to pursue relentless offensive operations, rejecting the previous experience of conducting a major battle followed by a period of refitting and inactivity. And Grant would, of course, implement his strategy in May of 1864, launching his protege, William T. Sherman, into North Georgia, aimed at defeating Joseph Johnston's army and targeting the railroad hub in Atlanta. In Virginia, he had Meade apply a laser focus to Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, while two smaller forces moved up the Shenandoah Valley and ascended the James River to Bermuda Hundred, south of Richmond. Now, both of those auxiliary campaigns, as you know, failed in mid-May. Franz Siegel defeated at Newmarket in the Valley, and Benjamin Butler's Army of the James beaten at Bermuda 100 and Drury's Bluff uh, on May the 16th. As far as Meade's army was concerned, of course, Meade pursued Lee in what we know as the Overland Campaign. I think everybody logged in here understands that the fighting at the Wilderness, Spotsylvania Courthouse, North Anna, and eventually down 10 miles northeast of Richmond at Cold Harbor, resulted in 60,000 Union casualties, uh, a failure to capture Richmond, a failure to destroy Lee's army, but a success in preventing Lee's army from really being an offensive weapon. That, I think that is the, the best outcome that you can place on Grant's Overland campaign. The Army of Northern Virginia would remain a potent on the defense, but on the offense, uh, it would be difficult to do that. Uh, with a new threat in the Shenandoah Valley uh, coming from David Hunter, the successor of Franz Siegel, Lee detached Jubal Early 
and about one third of his infantry force to uh, ensuring that Lee by necessity would adopt a defensive posture against Meade and Grant. Now with Butler's access to Richmond blocked by Confederate forces under PGT Beauregard at Bermuda 100 and Lee apparently immovable uh, in his defense of the Confederate capital north of the James River, Grant made a bold decision. He would secretly shift Meade's entire army across the James and capture Petersburg, 23 miles south of Richmond, and the capital's logistical and supply nexus. Now, Petersburg was a thriving railroad and industrial center before the war, boasting the second largest population of any city in Virginia, and in, by 1861, the seventh largest city in the entire Confederacy. One of your trivia questions can be, can you name the other six largest cities in the Confederacy, all of which became major cities, except for Petersburg. But don't think of Petersburg as the small town that you visited uh, in current times. It was a very, very important city. And all but one of the railroads supplying Lee's army and the huge inflated population at Richmond went through Petersburg before getting to Richmond. So capturing Petersburg would have been tantamount to basically cutting off Lee's army from the outside world and forcing Lee uh, to abandon the capital. Therefore, it, obviously much was at stake as Grant announced to the Washington authorities his intention uh, to move south of the James. Grant was only too aware of the risk involved in this maneuver, he had to disengage from the very close lines around Cold Harbor without Lee knowing he had gone in order to gain a head start on what would be a much longer route to Petersburg than Lee's would be. Once Lee realized that Grant had been he would need to persuade the Confederate commander that he intended to approach Richmond along the same routes used by George McClellan north of the James two years earlier. And even if all of this went according to plan, Grant would have to cross the swampy, bridgeless Chickahominy River, then cross the mighty James far enough downstream to be invisible to Confederate intelligence. And at a point where that James River was less than four, the, the 4,000 feet wide that it was in most places downstream uh, and 80 feet deep. At every point in this journey, the Army of the Potomac would be spread out and vulnerable, never more so during the process of crossing the James. The movement would also put Butler's army in jeopardy, as Grant would be too distant to rescue the beast if Lee attacked the Army of the James. Moreover, this type of operation defied the preference of the administration, which nurtured a perpetual fear for the sake of the national capital. And the removal of Meade's army as an, it was an invitation to the Confederates to threaten Washington, which of course is what Early would do uh, through the Shenandoah Valley. Now, thus far in Grant's tenure as general in chief, his results had been disappointing and a disaster of any description in the movement to Petersburg would most likely have exhausted even President Lincoln's willingness 
to keep Grant on a long leash. Now, these maps are, you know, very difficult to, to follow in detail, I realize, especially when you're looking at them on a screen. And I don't expect you to understand to try to follow all of this, but the dotted lines represent the various routes that the five Union Corps that would be moving towards Petersburg would take. And Porter Alexander, our, our articulate friend, said that Grant employed speed, stealth, deception, and solid planning to accomplish the most brilliant piece of logistics of the entire war. And I think he, make a good, he makes a good argument. The first thing that Grant did on June the 7th, four days after the battle at Cold Harbor, was to send Phil Sheridan and two-thirds of his cavalry northwest to uh, target the Virginia Central Railroad and ultimately link up with David Hunter's army, which was successful in the Shenandoah Valley and was aiming to cross the mountains and move to the east. So not only would that seal the fate of the Virginia Central Railroad, but it would also draw most of Lee's cavalry out of the Richmond-Petersburg area. And of course, as we know, cavalry was essential to discovering the whereabouts of an enemy. So Grant was pretty smart in creating a diversion, which would make it even harder for Lee to find out what he was up to. He also arranged for a motley fleet of ferry boats to move up the river from Fort Monroe, and he dispatched engineers to locate the best place to build what would be one of the longest military pontoon bridges in history. He then authorized uh, Butler to destroy the railroad bridge across the Appomattox River at Petersburg to thwart Lee's ability to rush reinforcements into what was known as the Cockade City of, of Petersburg. Now, this effort would fail on June 9th uh, as the old men and young boys manned the ramparts uh, until Beauregard's forces arrived on the scene. Now, Graham would begin his march on June the 12th. Five Army Corps, as I said, silently abandoned the Union lines, including Baldy Smith's 18th Corps, which was on loan from Butler's Army uh, to fight at Cold Harbor. Each corps, disengaging from north to south, followed carefully chosen routes to expedite the movement, with the 18th Corps marching to White House Landing. And let me see if I can signal with my little cursor here. Here's White House Landing on the Pamunkey River. Uh, and so Smith's Corps would go down the Pamunkey into the York, down to Hampton Roads, and then follow the James River back up to Bermuda 100, while the four corps of Meade's Army of the Potomac would march overland, as you see here. Here's Hancock's 2nd Corps, Wright's 6th Corps, Warren's 5th Corps, and Burnside's 9th Corps, all following uh, different routes in order to expedite the movement. Their first challenge would be to cross this Chickahominy River, the bridges for which had all been destroyed by the Confederates. Now, the Chickahominy was described by one Union officer as a wide ditch, partly choked with rotten logs and full of brown, tepid, sickly-looking water whose slow current would scarcely carry a straw along. 
Now, Grant's plan was to cross the Chickahominy at three separate points via pontoon bridges. Union cavalry then would advance in front of the infantry, scatter the few Confederate pickets at the upper two crossing sites, and while the engineers built pontoon bridges. And all of this went very smoothly. By dawn of June 13th, Meade's army was either south of the Chickahominy or poised to cross that river. Now, in order to persuade Lee that he was moving in McClellan's 1862 footsteps, Meade would send two divisions and a brigade of cavalry westward from Long Bridge, the crossing point there, Hancock's Corps crossed the Chickahominy, west towards the crossroads at Riddell Shop or Glendale. And I think all of you know that Glendale was the scene of one of the Seven Days Battles on June 30th, 1862. Now Lee's army awoke on the morning of the 13th, discovered that the Yankees had departed during the night, while reports circulated that this Union force was heading for the Glendale intersection. So Lee responded by ordering his two remaining infantry corps. Early was gone, but Richard Anderson, in place of the wounded James Longstreet, was in command of the first corps, and of course, A.P. Hill was in command of the third corps. Each of those corps had three infantry divisions with them. So Lee has six infantry divisions, and he orders them to protect the, cross, the cross at Riddell's shop and down here at Malvern Hill. Now, a sharp fight on the 13th, which I won't bore you with the details of, left modest casualties and the Glendale intersection in Confederate hands, but reinforced the notion in Lee's mind that this thrust might, in fact, represent Grant's next attempt to approach Richmond. Now, this is not to say that Lee was insensible to the possibility of the Union attempt across the James. He had predicted the likelihood of such an occurrence many days earlier. But the Confederate commander's primary responsibility was to protect Richmond. And until he could be sure that Grant no longer posed a threat to the Capitol, Lee would maintain his position on the north side, counting on Beauregard to provide timely intelligence regarding any enemy operations to the south. Now, because all of Meade's pontoons were required to span the Chickahominy, Grant placed Butler in charge of bridging the James. And Butler would dispatch his chief engineer, very competent uh, Godfrey Weitzel, to select the crossing point and oversee the construction. Weitzel would recommend a position on something called the Wyanoke Peninsula. I imagine many of you have not been there. Uh, there's a road that leads most of the way down the Wyanoke Peninsula, but today you can't get right down to the riverbank from there. Uh, that's a point where, where Weitzel said, the good news is the river there is a little over 2,000 feet wide. Now, it's still very wide, but less so than most places uh, south of um, the confluence at City Point. The bad news was that the approaches on the north bank required at least um, uh, a quarter of a mile of, uh, of construction in order to build some kind of a, of a road, a corduroy type of a road to get to the riverbank. And they would need to also construct access from the south bank up to the local road network. 
work. So uh, despite some delays in receiving the necessary supplies, the engineers worked with a will, and by midnight of June 14th, 15th, they had completed a floating bridge consisting of 101 pontoon boats, about 2,000 feet long and 10 feet wide, the greatest bridge which the world has seen since the days of Xerxes, thought one admiring rebel. In the meantime, the Union infantry began gathering on the north bank of the James. Now on June 14th, Winfield Hancock's 2nd Corps, Horatio Wright's 6th Corps, Ambrose Burnside's 9th Corps, and most of Governor Warren's 5th Corps were on the north bank in position to cross, having negotiated the intervening ground without any meaningful interference from the Confederates. Meanwhile, Smith's 18th Corps had moved up the James, preparing to disembark uh, at City Point and Bermuda 100. And here you see in this dotted line representing Smith's aquatic approach to the battlefield, Warren, Wright, Burnside, and Hancock all coming down to the bridge site here at the Wyanoke Peninsula. That's where the bridges were. The only part of the movement that was not successful was the supply train. You see the supply train up here. Uh, they were supposed to cross the Chickahominy at Coles Ferry, but they found that, that uh, they were originally supposed to cross at Windsor Shades. Uh, that, that was impractical. So they moved down to Coles Ferry, but they didn't have enough pontoons. And so the supply wagons were stuck on the north side of the Chickahominy until they could get that pontoon bridge crossed. But nevertheless, Grant had achieved a spectacular logistical achievement one that, in my opinion, rivaled everything that he had done at the Vicksburg campaign. He had stolen a march on Lee, and now all he had to do was advance toward Petersburg, overwhelm that thin line of defenders outside of the city, and reap the benefits of forcing Lee either to fight for his communications, accept a siege of Richmond, or abandon the Confederate capital entirely. Now, what about the Confederate perspective? Now, as I mentioned, Lee was perfectly cognizant of the probability that sooner or later, Grant would shift operations to the south side. When Beauregard turned back Butler's rather tepid attack on June the 9th, the Creole general saw portents of an ominous offensive. But Lee, uncertain of Grant's intentions, declined to consider that effort by Butler anything more than a failed armed reconnaissance. No troops have left General Grant's army, Lee reassured the nervous Beauregard, and none could have crossed without being perceived. Now, Lee's confidence in his ability to counter any federal move derived from his own intelligence gathering capabilities and on Butler's purported line of scouts scattered down the James River. Still, Lee shifted Robert Hoke's division to the pontoon bridges uh, near Chaffin's Bluff. Now, if you can see where I'm circling my cursor here. Now, Hoke's division was a part of Beauregard's army that had been sent to reinforce Lee at Cold Harbor. So, by June the 14th, Grant had arranged his Petersburg offensive. Lee and Beauregard were speculating about the location and intentions of their enemy. 
Lee would respond to an inquiry from President Davis early on June 14th by saying that I think the enemy must be preparing to move south of the James. Lee knew, of course, that the Federals were moving south and that large numbers of Yankees had boarded the boats at White House Landing. But this could mean that Grant was changing his base to Harrison's Landing, where he could be resupplied by ship in preparation for a renewal on the next day to the attack that had failed at Glendale, and that the shipboard troops were on their way north, their terms of enlistment being expired, and many of the Union regiments had done precisely that in the days prior to Grant's departure. We ought to be extremely watchful and guarded, Lee advised, but alertness did not equate to shifting his focus from Richmond to Petersburg. Now, Beauregard was much less ambivalent regarding Grant's intentions. He beseeched the War Department to return Hoke's division immediately, warning that if some combination of Butler's and Meade's army attacked him, he said, I cannot answer for consequences. When this appeal elicited no response, Beauregard took matters into his own hands and at 10 p.m. on the night of June 14th, sent orders to Hoke to move immediately across the James River. He also sent staff officers to Lee to justify those orders. But the absence of hard evidence and Beauregard's, frankly, his penchant for the fantastic, left both Richmond and General Lee unconvinced of imminent disaster. So while Beauregard fretted and Lee remained cautious, Grant and Meade proceeded on June 14th with their offensive plans. In Grant's mind, Smith's three divisions would be solely responsible for capturing Petersburg. Smith's 18th Corps had boarded their transports on June 13th, and by the next day began a staggered arrival at Bermuda 100 or up the Appomattox River at Broadway Landing in Point of Rocks. This disembarkation began in the afternoon and would continue until after dark on the 14th. Meanwhile, at 8.30 a.m. on June 14th, Meade issued orders to Hancock's Corps to cross the river, utilizing the makeshift fleet to effect the passage while the engineers applied the finishing touches to the pontoon bridge for use by artillery and other wheeled vehicles. Before noon, the first of Hancock's Corps boarded these boats, and by one o'clock, they were ashore on the right bank, delighting the veterans, such as this New Jersey soldier who had grown rather disenchanted with the Virginia landscape. As we steamed across the beautiful river, our hearts were filled with new hope, he said, for we had bidden farewell to the swamp and miasmata of the Chickahominy, to the long lines of graves that stretched not only across the peninsula, but across the hills and valleys and streams and fertile fields and tangled swamps of Virginia up to the Rapidan. He said we were bidding farewell to the old battlefields and entering upon a new field of operations. Now it would take until about dawn on June the 15th to ferry all of Hancock's three divisions across the river. But by 5 a.m. on the 15th, the Second Corps was comfortably encamped on the south side, many of the men cleaning the grime of 40 days of constant campaigning with swims in the James. 
Hancock would remain personally on the north bank, communicating by signal flag to the far bank. He confirmed to me, now this is important, he confirmed to me that he had three days rations on hand, contradicting an earlier report that his corps would be out of food that night. Now, while the engineers finished their bridge and Hancock's troops ferried across the river, Grant boarded a steamer and met with Butler at Bermuda 100 to outline his plans for the attack. Grant told Butler that he would be solely responsible for the assault because Hancock would require reprovisioning before marching toward Petersburg. And with Meade's wagons stalled on the far side of the Chickahominy, as I mentioned earlier, Butler would be responsible for supplying the required 60,000 rations by shipping them down the James River. Grant told Butler, without this precaution, the services of this Corps cannot be had for an emergency tomorrow. Now, this message, when you think about it, not only implied that Grant considered Hancock's participation in the June 15th offensive as necessary in only an emergency, but that he was unaware of Hancock's real supply situation. So Grant returned to the north side by sunset on the 14th, and informed Meade of Butler's supply mission. And Meade, in turn, at 10 p.m., told Hancock that he should await the delivery and distribution of rations before embarking on the long march to Petersburg, ignoring Hancock's earlier report that he had food for three days. Now, as it unfolded on the morning of June 15th, multiple misunderstandings about the imminent arrival of these supplies froze the Second Corps in its camps, as Hancock obeyed Meade's directive to postpone his departure, a course of action that Hancock was unlikely to have followed if he had understood that his presence was required for the attack against Petersburg. As it turned out, the supply ships failed to arrive at all, so at 10.30 that morning, Meade released Hancock to begin his trek toward Petersburg. Thus, nearly six hours were wasted between the time that the Second Corps was united on the South Shore and their departure for the front. Six hours. That might have changed history. As for the 18th Corps, Grant's orders to Butler were to begin Smith's march toward Petersburg that night, the night of the 14th, and launch his attack as soon after daylight as he could. Grant assumed that Smith would capture Petersburg that morning and that Hancock would be available later that day to help Smith hold the city should Lee try to redeem the situation. Now, Smith would have his two white divisions that had arrived from Cold Harbor, uh, two brigades that were taken from his Bermuda 100 defensives, 2,500 cavalry, under August V. Kautz, and about 3,700 African-American soldiers under General Edward Hanks, a total of about 14,000 troops. But Smith would claim that he learned nothing of these plans until late on the 14th, as the last of his troops had disembarked. Of course, it would take time to organize his men who had landed in various places, absent any division integrity. Smith would then have to cross the Appomattox River in the dark, march five miles toward Petersburg, deploy for his attack. 
In short, Grant's expectation of a dawn offensive was a fantasy, an echo of the poor planning that had plagued Hancock's departure. Now, five men, Grant, Meade, Butler, Hancock, and Smith, needed to be in sync for this operation to succeed. But Grant failed to communicate his plans to all of his subordinates. And thus, like Mitch Trubisky driving the team down to the three-yard line of the Packers and then fumbling the ball away and not scoring, the general-in-chief jeopardized the potential payoff from his brilliant march to the James River. Now let's take a look at the Confederate side of things. This fellow, PGT Beauregard, had been in command of the Department of North Carolina and Southern Virginia since April 23, 1864, a theater of operations extending from the mouth of the Cape, Cape Fear River below Wilmington to the south shore of the James. The Virginia portion of his domain was known as the First Military District, was under the command of former Governor Henry A. Wise. Wise had only authority over the garrison troops in his district, while Bushrod Johnson's infantry division bore responsibility for containing Butler at Bermuda 100 behind a compact defensive line anchored on the left on the James and on the right on the Appomattox that was known as the Howlett Line that extended for little less than four miles. Because a portion of Johnson's division was on detached service, Beauregard deployed only about 3,300 men along the Howlett Line. At Petersburg, an elaborate defensive perimeter called the Damock Line stretched for nearly 10 miles, anchored on the Appomattox River both above and below Petersburg, uh, including 55 artillery batteries connected by infantry curtains. Only about 4,000 men covered this expansive line, including a large contingent of local militia, less than one-third of Smith's approaching force. No wonder Beauregard feared a disaster and was so adamant about returning hoax 6,600 men. But despite the Louisianans' orders the previous night, Hoke would not start to cross the James until about noon on June the 15th, leaving Beauregard on his own during the impending clash. Now, once informed of his assignment, Smith quickly organized his arriving infantry, many of whom had enjoyed little rest during the evening, and they started their march across the pontoon bridge about two or three o'clock in the morning. Smith's plan called for Couch's cavalry to lead the way, dispersing any resistance outside the Damoc line and allowing the infantry to march against the works, which, according to Butler, uh, were held by only a skeleton force. Now, the Federals began to cross, as I said, between two and three, but Couch was delayed in his crossing of the pontoon bridges. So it wasn't until about five in the morning, a half an hour after dawn, that Smith's two white divisions joined the uh, black troops that had marched in from City Point. Now, the Union Cavalry rode ahead as directed and encountered a stubborn Confederate force on high ground dug in near the Baylor farm. Where's my cursor here? Here we go. Here's the Baylor house. And they were on the high ground here that has all but been destroyed 
by the Interstate 295 interchange with Virginia Highway 36, if you've ever been in that part of the world. Declaring the resistance uh, too powerful for cavalry, Smith called on Hanks to shove the rebels aside. The blacks lurched ahead, as you see here, with the four uh, USCT units attacking on either side of the railroad there, uh, against what was really only a cavalry brigade and a single artillery uh, battery. Uh, eventually, these four or 500 greatcoats fell back, although the blacks suffered some serious casualties in this assault. Uh, a hard-earned victory that was accompanied, unfortunately, from the Union side by a sinister byproduct, the intimidation of Baldy Smith. At a most unexpected place, I had been called upon to develop my force and make an assault, and this fact caused me at once to cease to take anything for granted that had been asserted, wrote Smith. Grant's dawn attack, already a moot point, would now face further delay. Now, Smith did resume his approach, but with extreme caution, stopping at every ridge between Baylor Farm and the Democ line. Not until afternoon did his three divisions pull up within sight of the Confederate defenses. Smith deployed with Martindale's division on the right, Brooks's division in the center, Hicks's division on the left, and the cavalry even farther south. All along the line, rebel cannon belched out uh, at their new targets, inflicting, frankly, minor casualties. One Union regimental commander was killed by this. But further persuading Smith that the Confederates were substantially defending this position, despite what Butler had told him. Smith opted to conduct a very elaborate uh, reconnaissance to identify points of attack for his assault, taking almost all afternoon, and eventually focusing on a strong point known as Battery 5 uh, near the City Point Railroad. Now, while all of this is unfolding in Smith's ranks, what about our friend General Hancock? Now, Hancock had left his grounds here. Oops, let me go back a map. At, uh, at the Wyanoke Peninsula here, where he had landed. Here's the, here are the bridges. This is where he camped. And he left this area in an ambulance because his Gettysburg wound had started uh, festering again, and he was unable uh, to mount a horse. And this had a role as well, because Hancock is not mobile now. He can't move any faster than the ambulance, and he, he has to stick to the roads. His men, in their march, wilted under what was very, a very hot day, almost 100 degrees that day, traversing poor roads and armed with faulty maps. So inadequate were these maps that one of his divisions, Francis Barlow's division, depicted here, marched completely in the wrong direction. Not until 5.30 that afternoon did David Burney's division reach a crossroads about four miles east of Petersburg. And here you see Burney approaching the position here. Here's Smith's divisions, here comes Burney. At that point, Breathless couriers 
arrived from both Grant and Smith with orders to immediately support Smith's impending attack. Now, Hancock was surprised by the urgency of these orders, and he struggled to determine precisely where Smith wanted him to go. Confusion abetted by poor staff work. So the same lack of an informed guiding hand that had so delayed Hancock's march compromised the ability of Smith and Hancock to cooperate. With Meade completely out of the loop, Butler doing little to encourage Smith to attack, and Grant passively relying on Butler to keep him apprised, seemingly unconcerned that his dawn offensive had been so long delayed. Now, Smith's personal reconnaissance that afternoon, an exercise that required two hours, identified a ravine between batteries six and seven. And that is right here, this arrow right here. Now, many of you have been to Petersburg National Battlefield. If you have, you might remember that the entrance to the battlefield goes up a ramp off of Highway 36. Highway 36 tra traverses that ravine uh, that Smith identified. He thought that he could get his troops behind the strong point here at Battery 5 by approaching through that ravine in defilade. But he still felt that if the works contained a strong complement of infantry supporting the obvious artillery presence, his attack would fail. My best chance of success was to trust to a very heavy skirmish line, which would not of itself attract much artillery fire, and which yet would be sufficient to do the work if the enemy was not very strong in infantry, Smith would explain. Now, troops from William Brooks's division would initiate the, the attack, uh, and triggering a support by Martindale's division on his right and Hinks's African-Americans on his left. Smith further thought it prudent to degrade Beauregard's defenders with artillery, but to add to the comedy of errors that day on the Union side, when he called on his artillery chief to move his guns into position, to my dismay, I found him without authority to have taken out the horses and sent them to water. So it wouldn't be until 7 p.m. that Smith's guns would be available. Then the cannons roared, and in 15 minutes, they fell silent, and Smith sent his infantry forward. They not only penetrated that ravine behind batteries five and six, uh, but they threatened those bastions from the front. The entire complement of Confederate artillery surrendered uh, with most of its supporting infantry. On Brooks's right, Martindale's division captured batteries three and four, while the black troops accomplished even more, successfully assaulting batteries seven and eight, and then compelling the Confederates to abandon batteries nine and 10. So all the way from two down to 10 uh, was the Confederate, uh, the, the Federal victory. But now the question remained, what would the Yankees do with this tardy but decisive victory? Now, with Barlow's division lost, only Bernie's and John Gibbon's Second Corps divisions were in position to respond to those urgent messages to support Smith. But the poor communications and the confusing geography conspired to uh, delay their arrival until well after dark, 
and Hancock would meet with Smith about 9 p.m. Uh, Smith explaining what had transpired and, and pointing out the extent of his achievement. Hancock confirmed to Smith that Bernie and Gibbon were available to continue the offensive. And Hancock outranked Smith, but he deferred to his junior's judgment, saying that I desired not only to interfere, not to interfere with his honor, as he was directed to take the place. Smith declined to resume the attack, requesting only that Hancock's two divisions, Gibbon and Bernie, see Gibbon and Bernie here, would move in and relieve Brooks and Hanks at the front, prepared to meet any Confederate counterattack. The second corps stumbled forward in the dark, and by 11 p.m., they occupied the captured line. Now, one of the enduring questions of the Petersburg story is the wisdom of Smith's and Hancock's decision that night. There were certainly bitter voices who decried the failure to move ahead and try to capture Petersburg. One uh, Union artillerist, for example, remembered that gradually the fact that we were not to fight that night impressed itself on us. The rage of the intelligent enlisted men was devilish, he wrote. The most blood-curdling blasphemy I ever listened to, I heard that night uttered by men who knew they were to be sacrificed in the morning. Many blamed Smith, such as the staff officer, who believed that Petersburg would have gone like a rotten branch had Smith exercised sufficient courage. Other critics cited the bright moonlight that would have guided the Federals into what was presumed to be an essentially defenseless city. Now, it's easy to blame Baldy Smith, a rather unlikable character whose post-war apologia reeked with prevarication. But I think to do so is a little too simplistic. Although Hancock is certainly blameless for his Corps' protracted march from the James on June 15th, he certainly could have insisted on a coordinated advance after 9 p.m. if, in his judgment, such an attack was warranted. He did not. Neither of the Army commanders, Butler or Meade, set foot anywhere near the scene of action, nor did Grant, whose headquarters at City Point were barely an hour's ride distant. Any three of these men had authority to order an advance. Now, Smith would cite a plethora of reasons for discontinu discontinuing the assault, chief among them the darkness and the disorganization of his troops, particularly the black troops. Smith also believed that by capturing batteries three through 10, he could mount artillery close enough to render Petersburg indefensible. Perhaps most of all, Smith expressed concern that the Confederates had been reinforced and to plunge his troops into the darkness against an enemy of unknown strength would have been, in his words, simple madness and would have inevitably resulted in disaster and the loss of all that we had gained. Now, in hindsight, we might conclude that Hancock and Smith should have pressed forward that night, but in my view, they acted reasonably, and the Confederates were, in fact, growing in strength. Now, General Beauregard had arrived in Petersburg from the Howlett line about 6 p.m. The attack that quickly followed didn't surprise him, as he had been predicting such an eventuality for days. But now the question was simple. Should he defend Petersburg by stripping the defenses at Bermuda 100 or forsake the Confederate, the, the, uh, the, the cockade city, and hold the Howlett line? 
Beauregard had unsuccessfully appealed for guidance on this question earlier in the day, so he was on his own when the Union assault erupted. Not long after the federal breakthrough, the leading elements of Hoke's division began to arrive in Petersburg in the form of Johnson Haygood's 1,400-man South Carolina brigade, much to the delight of the panic-stricken citizens. Haygood initially received instructions to move to the Army's right, but when news of the collapse of the eastern portion of the Damak Line reached Petersburg, new orders sent Haygood on the City Point Road to establish a defensive perimeter behind the captured batteries. Haygood almost stumbled into the Yankees uh, in the dark, but eventually, with the aid of Beauregard's highly competent engineer, Colonel David B. Harris, he drew a new line along a ridge behind Harrison's Creek, connecting the intact Damoc line positions at batteries two and 15. In other words, this new line that you see depicted on the map here was behind the captured Damoc line running from battery two south to battery 15 in this vicinity here. During the night, Alfred Colquitt's Georgians and then the North Carolinians of James Martin and Thomas Klingman extended the line, digging furiously to create an earthwork barrier. In the meantime, Beauregard made the decision to abandon the Howlett line and bring Bushrod Johnson's division to Petersburg, giving him around 11,000 men to meet the combined forces of Smith and Hancock, who still outnumbered him three to one. Beauregard informed Lee of his decision and begged him uh, to replace Johnson's troops before Butler, discovering the Howlett line evacuated, moved west to sever the railroad and road connections between Richmond and Petersburg. In the pre-dawn hours of June 16th, Lee ordered George Pickett's division of about 4,500 men to cross the James for this purpose. Now the question became, how would the Federal High Command react on June the 16th to this developing situation? Now Lee put Pickett's division on the road to the river crossings at three in the morning. And a few hours later, Charles Field's division of the First Corps also started for the South Side. However, alert Union officers had detected suspicious sounds during the night, and at early daylight, they probed forward at Bermuda 100. The few troops Johnson had left behind fled quickly and retreated, and the gleeful bluecoats, although only a fraction of Butler's available strength, began ripping up the tracks of the Richmond and Petersburg Railroad. Here you see the railroad and the turnpike that ran parallel to the railroad. And I think it's obvious that if the Federals were in control of those two uh, avenues of communication, the ability of Lee to move troops to the South would be severely compromised. In the meantime, two additional Union Corps, Burnside's 9th and Warren's 5th, began using the now completed pontoon bridge and the ferry boats to cross the James with orders to extend Hancock's left. At the same time, Johnson's graycoats crossed the Appomattox, extending the new Confederate defensive perimeter, dubbed the Haygood Line, to mirror Hancock's deployment. Throughout the day, the 2nd and 18th Corps crept forward and discovered the new rebel defense line. 
Grant merely ordered Burnside and Warren to provide flank protection to Hancock, while the 2nd and 18th Corps spent the day identifying points for a proposed evening attack. As the Federals probed, the Confederates dug so that by late on the afternoon of June 16th, Beauregard had fashioned the Haygood line into a reasonably formidable position. Meanwhile, at Bermuda 100, Butler committed a relative handful of his troops to the occupation and destruction of the vital links connecting Richmond and Petersburg. And as a result, when Pickett's leading brigades arrived on the scene and charged forwards, the Federals quickly withdrew. Butler's failure to fortify and hold his position on the railroad was an even more egregious mistake than the overcaution of Hancock and Smith the previous evening. When Field's division arrived later in the day, the opportunity to block additional reinforcements from Lee to Beauregard had vanished. South of the Appomattox, Meade launched his attack at 6 p.m. All three corps present then, the 18th, 2nd, and now the 9th on the Union left advanced. Smith and Burnside merely demonstrated, never seriously challenging the Confederates in their fronts. Hancock's attack was a bit more spirited and resulted in the capture of batteries 13 and 14, but ran out of steam at dark without seriously compromising Beauregard's perimeter. The Confederate commander, however, recognized the Haygood line's vulnerability and ordered Colonel Harris to lay out new defenses even closer to Petersburg. Meanwhile, during the day, Lee had pressed Beauregard no fewer than four times for information about Meade's whereabouts. At 9.30 a.m., Beauregard had notified Lee of Hancock's presence, but these communication problems proved not to be limited to the Union side of the equation because that message was sent to Lee's old headquarters north of the James, while Lee was moving his headquarters south of the river. And so Lee never received that information. Not until 7 p.m. would Beauregard again mention the presence of the Second Corps, news to Lee that at least a portion of Meade's army had crossed the James. Inexplicably, during the skirmishing conducted by Burnside that evening, Beauregard remained unaware that the Ninth Corps was on the ground, not to mention the swiftly arriving Fifth Corps. How Beauregard's network of scouts on the James failed to detect a 2,000-foot-long pontoon bridge and a fleet of vessels ferrying tens of thousands of Union troops toward Petersburg, frankly, remains a mystery to me. I have no explanation on why that, why that intelligence failed. Thus, Lee contented himself with shifting the last of the First Corps divisions, Joseph Kershaw's, closer to the pontoon bridge while keeping A.P. Hill's Third Corps on the north side in position to defend Richmond against what was now a phantom force. Now, after the fighting died out on the evening of June 16th, Grant informed Meade that Butler reported as many as 50,000 Confederate troops had been spotted between Malvern Hill and Deep Bottom on the north side of the James. Grant admitted, however, that, quote, not knowing what appearances are in front of you, I cannot give positive directions how far or how hard you should push in the morning. I will leave this to your judgment knowing that you will push any advantage that might be gained. Now, I am sure that you all have read many times that on May the 6th at the Wilderness, 
Meade's purported command of the Army of the Potomac disappeared, and from that moment on, it was Grant's army. Well, I'm here to tell you that during at least the first Petersburg offensive, all of the operational and tactical decisions were made by George Meade. This would be Meade's battle, not Grant's. And the Pennsylvanian didn't hesitate. He passed the information on to Hancock and Burnside, encouraging those officers to launch attacks to exploit the huge, if possibly fleeting, numerical advantage over the beleaguered Beauregard. Hancock's Corps had been bloodied on the 16th, so the primary offensive responsibility on June 17th would fall on Burnside. Uh, Burnside's Black Division, as I had mentioned, was guarding the supply wagons and had not yet crossed the James, so he would have the services of only his three white divisions. And during the course of June 17th, each of these divisions would venture forward on separate assaults, never achieving coordination with each other, uh, while, or, or frankly with the 2nd and 5th Corps on their flanks. Now the morning assault conducted by Robert Potter's division targeted the southern flank of Beauregard's defenses, centered on a high knoll occupied by the Shand House. And I'm happy to tell you that the American Battlefield Trust is in the process of acquiring some of the land around the Shand House, which would eventually give us an opportunity to visit an important Civil War battlefield that uh, until now has been uh, virtually inaccessible to visitors. Potter's men had creeped to the base of the hill during the night and at dawn charged up the slope, sending Wise's Virginians and Matt Ransom's Tar Heels fleeing while decimating Fulton's Tennessee Brigade and capturing 600 men along with all four of the guns on Shands Hill. Now, Potter expected that his victory would be exploited by the Second Corps on his right and with support from James Ledley's Ninth Corps Division in his rear, but neither of these units advanced. Ledley citing difficult terrain and Hancock's men claiming, frankly, with dubious veracity, uh, that they had tried to attack. It was the same old story again, a most spirited and gallant attack without adequate supports, uh, observed a veteran of the 36th Massachusetts. Had a single corps been on the ground in position or had the divisions which were ordered to support us been ready to advance, the fearful carnage of the succeeding days would doubtless have been prevented and the long, tedious, wasting, bloody siege of Petersburg might have been avoided. Orlando B. Wilcox's 9th Corps Division spent the night behind the 2nd Corps, but about 10 a.m. on the 17th, they moved to the deep ravines east of the Shandhouse Ridge. Burnside assigned his chief engineer, the eccentric Major James St. Clair Morton, to identify the most likely ground for Wilcox's attack. Morton selected the terrain north of the Shandhouse, where the Confederates had been defeated that morning, and were desperately preparing a new line of works that was of yet limited utility. Wilcox's men boiled out of their protective ravine about 2 p.m., hampered, hampered by faulty tactical alignment and greeted by waves of Confederate canister. Nevertheless, the Federals almost reached the makeshift Confederate works when Major Morton directed the men to execute a half-wheel to the right. And you see uh, the arrows here all moving to the right. 
Now, what that meant was that Wilcox exposed his left flank to the Confederate fire for about 200 yards, and they were decimated. Morton would pay for this ill-conceived tactic with his life, and Wilcox's men fled for safety behind Hancock's troops. It seems as though our blue coats lay there thickly as sheaves of grain on a bountiful harvest field, wrote a Wisconsin soldier. Verily, it was a harvest of death. Now, the final Ninth Corps attack of the day came from the division commanded by James Ledley. Now, Ledley would become infamous for his role at the Battle of the Crater six weeks later, but his flaws would be obvious to any careful observer. His previous combat experience at the North Anna River in May featured a drunken and unauthorized attack, and by the time his division was ready to execute their orders on June 17th, Ledley was too inebriated to assume command. The supply of artificial courage which he had taken carried him beyond the, the proper counterpoise and rendered him wars to combat in which condition he remained in the ravine, explained a Massachusetts captain. One of Ledley's brigade commanders led the assault, uh, which began shortly before sunset. The Federal struck Wise's regiments and a portion of Stephen Elliott's South Carolina Brigade and collapsed the Confederate defenses. But by 10 o'clock, the Federals had run out of steam and ammunition in the dark, and a series of Confederate counterattacks regained the lost ground. The fighting finally petered out about midnight. All during the day while this was going on, Colonel Harris had worked diligently to identify a third line of defense even closer to Petersburg. Once the combat subsided, Beauregard's exhausted warriors quietly slipped out of the Haygood line and fell back to Harris's designated position, 800 to 1,000 yards to the rear. The weary rebels spent what was left of the evening frantically digging. Meanwhile, at Bermuda 100, Pickett had restored all of the works that had been lost the day before, while Butler seemed content to remain on the defensive, despite being sent two of the Sixth Corps divisions as reinforcements. Now, as frustrating as the federal performance on June 17th must have been to Meade and Grant, Robert E. Lee suffered his own measure of anxiety that day. At daybreak, he again pressed Beauregard to identify his opponents. The Creole commander continued to say that he faced two corps of Federals, presumably the 18th and 2nd, still failing to acknowledge the presence of Burnside and Warren. At 11.15 that morning, Beauregard compounded the confusion by informing Lee that Warren had likely departed for the Piedmont to confront Early, and boldly suggested that Lee send him reinforcements so that he could crush the Yankees in his front. Not long thereafter, Beauregard changed his tune, telling Lee that a local citizen had reported as many as 30,000 Federals crossing the James and appealed for help to hold his position. One can only imagine Lee's reaction to this conflicting intelligence. At 4.30 that afternoon, Lee told Beauregard, I have no information of Grant's crossing the James River, but he ordered Hill and Kershaw to slide even closer to the pontoon bridge at Chaffin's Bluff. Then at last, Beauregard provided Lee 
with unambiguous confirmation that the Ninth Corps was on the ground in front of him and that the Fifth and Sixth Corps were either there or en route to Petersburg. Lee now finally had the information he needed to shift the rest of his army. He immediately ordered Kershaw to cross the river and told Hill to march to the pontoon bridge and be prepared to move to the south side at dawn. Though it was now a race, would Meade and Grant succeed in overwhelming Beauregard's exhausted men before the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia could arrive and save the city? Now, Kershaw began his march to Petersburg at three in the morning, and a few hours later, Hill's Corps started tramping across the pontoon bridge at Chiefin's Bluff, while Field's division left their works at Bermuda 100, following in Kershaw's footsteps. Union forces were also on the move that morning, reacting to Meade's nighttime orders to commence a coordinated advance at daylight. Four corps, the 18th, 2nd, 9th, and 5th, moving from north to south, lurched forward, prepared to engage the Confederates. In some places, they met a little resistance, but most of the would-be attackers abandoned Counter, confronted the abandoned works of the Haygood line. Surprised but undeterred, Meade told his Corps commanders to prepare a new attack focused on the recently completed Harris line. The 18th and 2nd Corps pressed forward but soon discovered that the rebel works in their front were well prepared and adequately manned and their efforts came to naught. Further south, the 9th and 5th Corps never advanced at all claiming to be stymied by a lack of flank protection or professing that they had never received mandatory orders to assault. These failures infuriated Meade, who saw his window of opportunity closing. For once, Meade lost his poise, and he snapped in a message to Bernie. He said, I find it useless to appoint an hour to effect cooperation, useless. And he demanded that all four corps make an immediate attack irrespective of the disposition of any other corps. Now, by this time, Kershaw had arrived and extended the Confederate right, and Field was moving into position uh, on Kershaw's right, while Hill's troops were legging it south toward Petersburg. Now, the Federals responded to Meade's frustrated and peremptory attack orders in uneven, and universally unsuccessful fashion. On the far left, Warren's advance ran into Johnson's men and the fresh soldiers of Kershaw's division. The brigade commanded by a former uh, Maine professor named Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, charged about 3 p.m., yelling like a pack of infuriated devils, reaching the base of the Confederate works before lethal fire pouring from cannons and rifles stopped in cold. Colonel Chamberlain was among the casualties, but he would defy medical opinion and survive his wound, solidifying his place in history in 1865 at Petersburg and Appomattox. At the other end of the line, Hancock's men poised for another effort to breach the rebel works, focused on high ground known as Colquitt's salient. And here is Colquitt's salient right here. The assault commenced between 4 and 4.30, but in the face of furious Confederate fire, most of the Federals took a few steps forward, hit the ground, uh, having experienced enough of attacking earthworks and recognizing a forlorn hope when they saw one. 
But a large contingent of relatively green heavy artillerists now serving as infantry were not so naive as to underestimate their peril. But nevertheless, they poured out of defilade along the Prince George Courthouse Road in this fashion here, aiming towards Colquitt's salient, emerging out of the woods only about 200 yards from the rebel line. That field became a seething hill, recalled one of the survivors of the first main heavy artillery. They poured it into us from the front, the right, and the left. In 10 minutes time, 632 of the 850 men of the first main heavy artillery that made that attack were shot. The largest single loss of any regiment in any Civil War battle. The final Union spasm of the day came from Burnside's bloodied veterans, elements of whom managed to cross the Norfolk and Petersburg Railroad here and approach a, a strong position known as Elliott's or Pegram's salient. They too failed to penetrate the Confederate line, but they dug in exploiting the cover of the ravine created by this waterway known as Poor Creek or Taylor's Creek. And these would be the fellows who would launch the initial attacks at what would be the Battle of the Crater uh, six weeks later. Now Lee had arrived in Petersburg about uh, 11.30 that morning, met with Beauregard at the Customs House and observed the situation with Beauregard from high ground near the city reservoir. The Mercurial Creole urged Lee to undertake an offensive focused on the exposed Confederate left flank, but Lee declined preferring to remain on the defensive. And that decision, of course, led to the successful repulse of the many uncoordinated Union attacks on the afternoon of June 18th, which ended the first Petersburg offensive. We triumphed at last against fearful odds in holding the invaders at bay and saving the city from the rule of the Negro and the beast, boasted a Virginia private. The Yankees have a large force, admitted a South Carolinian, but if they keep on charging, we will have them all killed in a few days. Ulysses S. Grant, uh, for the time being at least, had seen enough killing. Although estimates vary, my best guess is that about 13,000 federal soldiers became casualties between June 15th and 18th. Confederate casualty figures are even more murky, but 2,500 to 3,000 seems a reasonable guess. At about 10 p.m. on the evening of the 18th, George Meade said a summary of the day's action to Grant, concluding by expressing great regret that I am not able to report more success, but adding that I believe every effort to command it has been made. Grant immediately replied without a hint of condemnation. I am perfectly satisfied, he wrote, that all has been done that could be done, but of course, this was far from the truth. Until the arrival of the first troops from Lee's army on the morning of June 18th, Grant's army groups outnumbered his opponents by as much as five to one, odds that despite Confederate earthworks should have spelled triumph. A few weeks later, Meade confessed to a trusted staff officer that I should have taken Petersburg. I had reason to calculate on success, but he didn't. Why? I think the primary cause of the federal failure can be found in the condition 
of the troops, particularly Meade's own Army of the Potomac. The Army is exhausted, admitted its commander. With 49 days of continued marching and fighting, it absolutely requires rest. He added, moreover, that we cannot replace officers with experienced men, and there is no time for reorganization or careful selection. And I don't think there can be any doubt that the horrendous casualties and consequential attrition at the line and field command levels sustained from the wilderness to Cold Harbor reduced the efficiency and esprit de corps of Meade's army, with many of its best tactical leaders and bravest fighting men laying in shallow graves or languishing in hospitals. Meade's offensive capabilities have been grossly diminished. Now, that's not to say that the soldiers were too demoralized to fight, the long list of killed and wounded uh, during the first offensive stands as mute testimony, but their willingness to press an attack had all but vanished. There were, of course, mistakes made at the higher command levels. Grant's failure to communicate his battle plan to all the principals involved severely compromised his opportunity for success on June 15. Smith's timidity in executing the assault that day allowed reinforcements to bolster Beauregard's shattered ranks that evening, and the tardy attack meant that a push into Petersburg must occur in the dark, a risk neither Smith nor Hancock was willing to take. This hesitation and conservative mindset infected the other Corps commanders, who only rarely felt sufficiently comfortable about their flanks to advance in concert with one another leading to the piecemeal assaults that characterized federal operations during the succeeding three days. Benjamin Butler fumbled a golden opportunity to sever the direct road and railroad connection between Richmond and Petersburg when he so easily surrendered his position between the two cities, allowing Lee to filter troops to Petersburg without interference. And at least part of the overall explanation lies with the general-in-chief, whose fingerprints were all but invisible during these four days, delegating re operational responsibility to Meade, which in fairness was sort of typical of Grant's generalship. Now, of course, the Confederates had a great deal to do with the outcome. Beauregard and his little army performed about as well as any force during the entire war. As one observer put it, with such fearful and almost incredible odds against him, General Beauregard maintained a successful barrier to the federal advance, a feat of war almost without precedent. Now, I think that's overstating the case just a tad. Beauregard deserves high praise for selecting his two new lines of defense, timing the evacuation of the old lines flawlessly, and allocating Hoax and Johnson's brigades properly. But there's frankly little evidence of Beauregard's influence on the combat that thwarted the Union attacks credit for that residing with the subordinate officers uh, to the limited degree that tactical improvisation when fighting on the defensive is relevant. On the negative side of Beauregard's ledger, his remarkably poor intelligence and, and inconsistent assessment of the situation in his front uh, greatly contributed to Lee's hesitation to reinforce his beleaguered comrade. As for Lee, Historians often cite his failure to reinforce Petersburg more quickly as one of the worst blemishes on his record. Although there can be no question that Grant stole a march on the Gray commander and that his deception kept Lee uncertain of his enemy's whereabouts, Lee, I think, acted reasonably, given the information available to him between June 13th and 17th. 
Lee's first responsibility was to protect Richmond. And without some assurance that the Federal Army was not lurking on the north side of the James, his decision to send incremental reinforcements south, I think was reasonable and prudent. Once he had definitive information of the federal presence at Petersburg, he acted swiftly. I think the first Petersburg offensive should be ranked among the major battles of the Civil War. More than 125,000 soldiers battled for four days, resulting in combined casualties approaching 16,000, numbers that correlate with the largest and bloodiest engagements of the Grant's failure to capture Petersburg would lead to eight more offensives during the next 288 days before he achieved the victory that might have been his nine months earlier. I thank you for your attention. And uh, Mark, I uh, understand that there might be some questions that you have access to. And if I could ask you to select any of those questions that you'd like to convey to me, I'll try to answer them. Now, uh, usually, Will, they will show up in the chat, but uh, I don't know if you're seeing those. Well, let me, okay. If uh, you are, just go ahead and answer them uh, in uh, sequence or? I, I don't see, I see three things on my chat, but they're all uh, pertaining to um, things that are not relevant to questions, so. Oh, okay. Well, I don't, uh, I, uh, I, I, I don't mind uh, having people unmute. Uh, this is the last time we're going to be doing this, I think. So those who have questions can, I, I would say, individually, just, wait, wait, hold on, I've got this. Uh, well, this is from Bruce. Uh, that's more of a comment. It's not a, a, uh, a question. Let's see what else we got here. Wait a second. I'm not, get, I'm not getting all these. Hold on. See what else we got. I don't I, know. I don't see I don't anything. Know. Yeah. What? Yeah, I would, I would just ask people to unmute. I'm not seeing any questions here. So unmute yourself individually uh, if anybody you... has a question. Because I'm not seeing any questions. Otherwise, I have a question or an observation. Okay. Uh... Go ahead, Bruce. Um, Will, great talk. Um, looking forward to reading the trilogy. Um, you seem to uh, be adopting Douglas Southall Freeman's defense of uh, Lee at Petersburg, putting a lot of the blame on uh, Beauregard's intelligence or lack thereof communications. Um, did Beauregard ever respond to this or, you know, mention to this point, uh, talking about this point in his writings? Uh, no, he really, he didn't. Uh, you know, Lee never took Beauregard to task. No one took Beauregard to task for, for these communication failures. Uh, you know, things turned out pretty well for the Confederates, and so there, there seemed to be no reason to have any recriminations uh, because the defense of Petersburg was successful. And, and Beauregard, so Beauregard was never attacked for it, and he never felt compelled to offer any defense against, uh, you know, against aspersions that were never, never leveled against him. Uh, yeah, I know that Freeman, Freeman also came to these conclusions. And, and I got to tell you, one of the things I did, Bruce, and before I even started this project was I wrote down 
all of the controversial questions that had popped up about Petersburg that I was aware of for many of the many years that I had been around Petersburg and done tours and read things. And I said, I'm going to try to answer, uh, at least address, uh, give my opinion and why I thought that way on all, on all of these controversial questions. And of course, one of them is but plenty of writers, you know, criticize Lee about this. And I, you know, I have to say that I went into it as, as, with as open a mind as I possibly could, and uh, I came to those. It came to that conclusion. You know, Lee did Lee not reinforce Beauregard? That's not true. He sent Hoke, then he sent Pickett, then he sent Field, uh, then he, and then, and then when he got definitive word that the Federals were not in position to threaten Richmond, he released Kershaw and A.P. Hill. So he, he, he did this incrementally. So I think the idea that Grant, that, that Lee never reinforced Petersburg until it was almost too late, I mean, that's not true. Um, so if I was in Lee's shoes, you know, I, I, would, I think I would have done the same thing. And I don't need to tell you, Bruce, or almost everybody else on this Zoom that, you know, it's really not, it's not historically, it's not, it's not historically uh, applicable to make judgments based on hindsight on what we know now. In order to be a, a, an honest historian, uh, you need to uh, understand what the characters at the time were thinking based on what they knew. And what Lee knew was that the Federals could have marched into Richmond if they were still on the north side of the James and he couldn't allow that to happen. So that, that's kind of where I, I come down on, on, this, uh, on this question about Lee's generalship during those four days. Following up on that, Will, following up on, on, on Bruce, what was Lee doing offensively, if you will, to learn more on his end, north of the James, to learn where Grant might be, if anywhere? Well, he had, you know, he had Rooney Lee's division of cavalry was the only cavalry he had with him. Where was the rest of the cavalry? was off fighting Sheridan at Trevilian Station. So he had very limited cavalry resources. Uh, and Rooney Lee, you know, had to, had to be spread out pretty thinly. But it was really, it was really Rooney who found the abandoned federal position on the north side. Uh, and Beauregard had come to that conclusion almost simultaneously. And, you know, Mark, I think, you know, I think, you know, you might be on to uh, maybe a, a more valid tactical criticism of Lee. Maybe he wasn't as aggressive with his cavalry probes as he might have been. But there were federal cavalry on the north side of the James keeping Rooney Lee from going forward as well. So, you know, was Confederate cavalry as aggressive as it might, as it might have been to find us out? No, they, they weren't. You know, and at the, and at the same time, the and at the same time, I've listened to your talk twice, and I'm. <laughs> this is very complicated stuff. Uh, how far away was this Pontan Bridge from Beauregard's positions that he perhaps could have or should have known where it was so as to better inform Lee? What was the distance? Uh, it was it was a long way. It's a long way down the down the James. It's you know nearly twenty miles, twenty river miles downstream from City okay. Point. So and, how was he to know? Well, remember he he, he had that line of scouts 
up and down the James River to provide information about anything that was going on downriver. Yeah, but once 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 Lee, uh, Grant started to cross on the fifteenth, those people were expected to know and report back. Or right, right, and they and were okay. So that's part of it, and I and I don't and I tell you, I said I said it briefly in my talk, Mark. I don't understand that. I mean, obviously, the the explanation must be well, those guys weren't there. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've never read anything about you know the scouts being captured and not being able to get the report. In. But I don't know. I don't know what happened there. Yeah, I, no I, I, I guess what I'm saying is but that let me I finish. Kind of... let, let me okay, finish. I'm sorry. I'll answer your question. What really is, uh, I think, what makes Beauregard culpable is that. He is fighting the Ninth Corps and the Fifth Corps arrived on June 16th, and the Ninth Corps is engaged on June 16th. The Fifth Corps is certainly engaged on the morning of the 17th, and Beauregard seemingly is unaware of that. How, you know, that was a fault. He, you know, he, he should have that's an obvious command imperative that you understand who you're fighting. And he should have communicated that to Lee. And as I said, his communications were all over the map. At some point, at some time, you know, he said, hey, listen, the Yankees are going off to reinforce uh, to fight early. We, you know, we need to go on the offensive. And, and he, he wasn't in, you know, and if you read the official records, all these things are in the ORs. There are countless communications from Lee to Beauregard. Who are you fighting? Who's down there? Where's where's Meade's army? I need to know in order to make informed decisions. Beauregard couldn't tell him. Very, very interesting. That sounds like Sam Adams in the uh, Vietnam War. Who are we fighting? <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, Dave Heinke had his hand up. Dave, why don't you unmute and ask, uh, ask Will your question? Yeah, Will, you know, everyone talks about Grant as the genius and you see what he did at Champions Hill and Vicksburg and you see what he did at Chattanooga, but he seems to be a Ducasse here and just totally absent. Nobody ever criticizes Grant for being an hour away in City Point and doing absolutely nothing. What's your take on that? I, you know, Dave, I, I, uh, I agree. And I said last night, as Mark might remember, someone asked the question about Grant and I admitted that, first of all, I'm an admirer of Grant. You know, there, it, it, you're probably aware that there are three or four books that have appeared in the last you know, seven, six, seven years that are very critical of Grant. There's this cottage industry now of criticizing Grant. And a few people I have run into or read of it, they say, well, Will Green is one of those people. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not an anti-Grant person. But I follow the, you know, I follow the evidence and th these not only this four days of the first offensive, but uh, you know my book goes from the first offensive through the third offensive, which is um, first deep bottom and the battle of the crater. The second offensive is uh, the Wilson Cowles Cavalry raid and the battle of Jerusalem Plank Road in the middle of, of, of June, June 22nd, 23rd. And all, all of those offensives were poorly handled by Grant. Uh, Grant either made mistakes or he was AWOL uh, in, in getting involved in these in these assaults. So is Ulysses S. Grant a, a great commander? You know, Vicksburg, Chattanooga, 
absolutely. But these six weeks between June 14th and July 30th, 1864, were some of the worst days of his military career, in my view. Now, in defense of Grant, remember, Grant is general-in-chief. Uh, he has responsibility for what's going on with Sherman and what's going on out in the far western theater, what's going on in the Shenandoah Valley. Again, you read Grant's correspondence or you read the official records. He is in communication constantly with all of these various uh, subordinates in other theaters of the war. And the people who defend Grant will point out that, listen, he had more responsibility than just managing against Robert E. Lee. Uh, and which is true. And he, you know, I, 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 there's a new biography of Meade coming out. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm very anxious to read it because I don't think there's been a very adequate study of Meade in, in recent years. The, the, the best biography of Meade is published in 1960. But I think most of you have read that, as I said earlier, that Grant, you know, took over Meade's Army and Meade was just a functionary from that point on. He was very frustrated. You read Meade's letters to his wife. He just feels like he's inadequate. But you start looking at what really happened, and Grant delegated an awful lot of responsibility to, to George Meade here. Um, but uh, these are not these are not Grant's best hours. And as the campaign unfolds, you know he'll become he'll become more and more successful. This is, uh, I guess, in conclusion, I'll say this kind of a, kind of an aberration uh, of Grant's very normally very fine generalship. Thank you. Yes, and uh, just following up on the, that question and answer, uh, I, I believe that's Jennifer Murray's work. Uh, she spoke to us earlier this year when I got a chance to uh, to uh, to, uh, to get to know her, and I think she's speaking to our group again next January. So we'll see where she is on the book and what she has to say on these subjects. We'll be ready to talk to her. The recent book by Kent Masterson-Brown does not touch on these subjects. That's more of a Gettysburg-related. Uh, well, there's a book by Joseph Rose, if some of you have read that. Oh, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's. Joseph a, Rose, and, and, you know, and, there's, and there's several others whose names. For, yeah, yeah, that's a different, moment. I think that's a different. Yeah, that's a different orient, solid there are, different orientation. There, there, yeah. are, there are several books that are, you know, are, are making the point that Grant, you know, Grant's ter terribly overrated. Blah, yeah, blah, blah. That, I, that, that, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But in any event, Bill Shepard uh, hmm? has a question. So, Bill, why don't you unmute and uh, let's hear from you. Yeah, yeah Mr. Green, a couple, two-part question. One, uh, Mark mentioned your uh, Civil War touring leading tours, that is, uh, coming up in the next year or so. Could you kind of give us a heads up and summary on what that might be so we could track you down at the various sure, battlefields sure. that you'd be at? And secondly, what's the uh, publication schedule as of now for volumes two and three on, on your trilogy? Well, thank you for, for asking that, Bill. In terms of the, of the book, um, I, I'm almost done with all the research for both volumes two and three, especially I'm just about done with volume two. I'm gonna start writing volume two, um, you know, sometime this summer. And if I can, you know, if I can do that consistent with keeping my handicap down, I should have that committed <laughs> to the uh, University of North Carolina Press by the end of next year, which means that uh, it'll come out sometime in, two, in 2023. And, uh, 
And then the, the third volume should follow fairly quickly because I won't have a lot of research to do. The only two remote places I haven't been able to get to, uh, the Pennsylvania State Archives and Harvard, both have some pretty substantial Petersburg manuscripts, uh, I, and they're not helping me out with uh, sending me scans. So when they, and they're not open to researchers yet. So when they open, I'll make those trips, but uh, that's that's the schedule on that. In terms of the tours, speaking of grant, um, I'm working with a, a really good organization called America's History LLC. Uh, and we are embarking on what we hope will be a four year series of following grants generalship. And between September 6th and 11th this year, we are going to follow Grant from Cairo to Corinth. Uh, and we're gonna headquarter in, in Nashville to begin with and then go to Paducah. Uh, we're gonna to go to Cairo, Columbus, Fort Hyman, what's left of Fort Henry, Fort Donaldson. We're gonna make a Parker's Crossroads, go to Shiloh for a day, Corinth, yeah, Davis's right Bridge, and then uh, head back to Nashville. So check out um, this history uh, website, and you can uh, you can see the itinerary at a very reasonable cost. And then the next tour that I have, uh, I'm going to be doing a couple of tours for the American Battlefield Trust at their conference next May. I'm going to be uh, doing a, a tour of Fredericksburg, which you guys are going to visit coming up and then I'm going to do a, a, a kind of a, a unique tour of I'm going to follow the ninth Corps in the Maryland campaign uh, and we're going to evaluate uh, we're going to evaluate basically Burnside's generalship Bill Marble and I may be the only two historians working today that don't think Burnside was an idiot and kind of like Burnside so you might hear a uh, you might hear a little different perspective and that's the American Battlefield Trust program but the but the but the grant the Grant Takes Command program in September. I think I'm very excited about it and uh, would love to have you or any of yeah. colleagues in Chicago join us. And what's the website on that again? America's America? History. Okay. America's History. Thank and you. If you have any, you know, have any trouble get, you know, getting information, just Mark Matranga can give you my email and I'll be happy to respond to you. Thank you. Sure, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering if there are any other questions. I haven't heard any. Uh, there, uh, if there aren't any, then I will. I will ask uh, because I, I just I, I did love the story that uh, that Will related uh, to me about Pamplin Park and how he got uh, involved so intensely there. Uh, those of us who were on the trip in 2011, which Bob Stoller was the was the uh, was the chair. Uh, we got, a, you know, the grand tour of Pamplin Park, and I think we were there on two occasions. Once, I think we had a lunch, and then we had a tour of the, of the place, and it's a magnificent uh, facility, and the grounds are terrific. Uh, so, uh, if, if you would, uh, Will, can you relate how that story went? With sure. Real, real quickly, I know the I know we're getting late in the evening, and the White Sox are probably about the seventh inning, so we need to follow, see what's going on with them. But uh, <laughs> this was uh, back in the APCWS days, the old uh, uh, Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites. It's a range of That was the the predecessor to the American Battlefield Trust. I was the director. Uh, Chris Calkins, who many of you know, was the historian of Petersburg National Battlefield and made a habit of kind of keeping track of what Peter Petersburg battlefield land might become available for us to try to acquire. 
And he contacted me in 1992 saying that 100 acres of land that saw the portion of the, of the Sixth Corps breakthrough on April 2nd and had tremendous Confederate earthworks on it would become available. And the most likely buyer was a timber company who'd probably come in and strip off all the, it was all wooded, strip off all the timber, you know, damage the earthworks. And uh, land in Dinwiddie County wasn't very expensive. And Chris said, hey, this is a pretty good opportunity for us to buy the land. I think it was only a couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, but that was still pretty rich for us at the time. So we did a little research and discovered that the land had been owned during the Civil War by the Boysaw family. And the Boysaw family were the ancestors of the Pamplin family, uh, who were a big benefactors to Dinwiddie County education programs, social services programs. So I wrote a letter to Mr. Pamplin. Uh, I think asking for a matching grant saying if, you know, if our members could come up with a hundred grand, would you match it to save your ancestors historic land? Well, you know, days went by, I didn't hear anything. And, uh, you know, sometimes these things work, sometimes they don't. But my secretary one afternoon uh, said that Dr. Pamplin from Portland, Oregon was on the phone. So I answered the phone and he introduced himself and said, well, we got your letter. He said, we talked it over with the family. We don't want to make a contribution. You win some, you lose some. And the next thing out of his mouth was, we want to buy this place ourselves and start a park on it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's a call of a lifetime. And I'm trying to act calm, you know, I'm doing one of these, you know, silently in my office. But uh, I guess I had the presence of mind to say, well, you know, Dr. Pamela, that would be wonderful. Many of us in our organization have experience in running and planning parks through the National Park Service. Would you consider hiring our group to be the on-site planner and, and eventual manager of the park in return for a uh, a financial contribution, which we would then use to hire a manager to, um, to oversee the other lands that we had bought around the country. And we didn't have that position at the time. He agreed to that. And so that's how we started out. Uh, we opened the initial facility uh, in June of 1994. And then in November of 94, Bob Pamplin called me, we, we talked fairly frequently, and he said, look, we're going to buy the 69 acres across the road, including our ancestral home, Tudor Hall, and that was something I expected to happen, uh, and then he said, but we also want to build a world-class Civil War Museum on the property, and we want you to come and manage it yourself, oversee this yourself, because we had been doing it, you know, as contractors. I was still executive director of APCWS. So my wife and I had, you know, about 10 days of sleepless nights. What do we do? You know, we, do we do we take this guy up on this offer? Is he serious? Or do we stay, you know, doing what we love here in Fredericksburg? Well, ultimately we decided to roll the dice and, uh, and take the job. And uh, eventually, the Pamplins invested $44 million in that facility. We built 10 buildings. Uh, we had a staff at one time of 61 FTEs, full-time equivalent employees. Um, we had a restaurant. We had four museums, four historic structures, uh, about three miles of, of trails uh, on these battlefields. And it, it turned out to be, as you say, Mark, I think of uh, you know, a remarkable facility 
uh, that I, you know, I, I will always be proud of to be a part of that. We had, you know, wonderful staff and a lot of hard work and, and Bob Pamplin's money. And uh, it's a great place. I'll be speaking at their symposium uh, in October, in fact. And I'll be coming back to speak. To them. I don't get up there very often, but I, but I do uh, from time to time. So, so thanks for asking. It's really an uh, incredible success story. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. Uh, so I guess well, there being no other uh, questions, the White Sox remain leading. They were, I went away from your talk for a second. They were leading, uh, still are. But uh, Will, uh, Will Green is a, is a great public historian. I neglected to add that he studied under uh, T. Uh, Harry Williams. Uh, that's one, one way that I got myself started in Civil War history. My dad had uh, Lincoln and his generals on his, uh, uh, his bookshelf. Right. which I still have, which I still have on mine. I keep it close near my, uh, it's in my bedroom. So I see it every night and every morning. Uh, and also, of course, Will, uh, everybody should know, Will uh, came up in the park service under Ed Barr's tutelage. So there's definite Ed Barr's uh, uh, connection there. He's a great historian. He's given us uh, two of the greatest books uh, so far. He's got more to come on the Petersburg campaign. We do have Gordon Ray, uh, part of his, Quintology, I guess you'd call it, on the Overland campaign, and there is the Hess book on the uh, in the in the trenches uh, book. Uh, so there is or has been some good work done, uh, very good work done by by Green and good work by others too on Petersburg. It's a kind of a neglected area uh, compared to other campaigns and battles. But after hearing Will's talk twice now, I am convinced, given the numbers and the casualties. If this were a battle or on several days, two years earlier in the war, it would be considered one of the major battles of the Civil War. Uh, and certainly it had uh, consequential results. Uh, I, I, and so it, it, uh, you made a believer out of me just, and that was one of the things I was thinking as I was driving home after leaving you off at the hotel last night that this, this was a very consequential event. And I'm still puzzled as, why, as to why uh, the, the Grant and me did not throw everything they had against these people when they had the chance, but they didn't, and that's history. So, uh, having been taught a very good uh, history lesson by you uh, tonight, we we thank you. Uh, so My that's pleasure. it for the that's it for the eight hundred and third meeting. We will be meeting again, I believe, on the uh, oh, I'm just guessing now on the tenth, I believe, of September. But it'll be the second uh, September. Uh, Friday in September when we will have Eric Wittenberg. I think his topic is yet to be announced. I would love to announce it, but can't. And of course, uh, the board will be meeting uh, in August, I believe. John, uh, John uh, uh, Sebastian will be calling a, a board meeting at that time. That'll be it. Uh, in, in the interim, I look forward to receiving your uh, support for the Bars Award for the Fredericksburg, uh, uh, Fredericksburg tour. And in closing, I, I just can... Uh, only think of, uh, I'll add my name to the all, all the illustrious people who supposedly said I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. Uh, Spinoza, Twain, Jefferson, all of us supposed to have said that. And I guess I'll just add my name, although I'm not as impressive of any of those things. I would have made better introductions <laughs> had I taken more time to, to, I've made shorter introductions had I taken more time to research and do a better job. Uh, they, they some, I sometimes went on too long. But uh, for those who thought I did so, and for those who told me I should do this permanently, I will just say to both groups, good night and good luck. So thanks again to Mark Kunis, 
who has always hosted us here. He's been our host. He's a terrific guy. He solves all problems. He certainly made me feel good when I started out uh, doing this in September. Uh, all thanks uh, are to Mark and to all of you for coming in and participating in this event. I've had a good time. I would have far uh, preferred to be with everybody in person. I was in Milwaukee last night. Now, I want to tell everybody also that uh, that was something for me because I hadn't done it since last, I guess, March or so. And uh, I realize how much I miss the in-person meetings, how much I get out of them, meeting and talking you know, with the Milwaukee people who I know, uh, and I'm sure Will would agree with me on that. But anyway, uh, that's it for me. Good night to Thanks. all. Thanks we'll very much, Mark. Thank okay, you. Thank much. you, Will. Thanks and maybe everybody. we'll see you. Maybe we'll see you in September. I hope so. Good okay. night. Good night to all. Everybody. Bye bye.